speak for the fight for worship. So on one side of the ring is worship, and on the other side of the ring is, is pride, really. That's what's sitting on the other side of the ring. And um, it actually could be worship in both corners. It could be worship in one corner and worship in the other. And you're just deciding which what's what's being worshipped in this corner and what's being worshipped in that corner. So um, just two different kinds. That might be a bit odd, but my point for this today is that worship is not an issue for us. I'll try and prove it in the next 35 minutes, which means we're going to over on a bit today. I'll do my best to stay in that time. But the object of worship is a battleground that even Jesus himself was once exposed to. He was asked to switch focus of worship. So even Jesus was asked, will you switch your worship from one to another? So because Jesus was challenged to decide, we should not and cannot assume that we're not in a similar battle sometimes to choose what we're going to worship. So that's my aim. And I'm going to try and do it in a way that none of us end up feeling complacent. All of us will feel challenged, whether you're a Christian of many years or not, whether you find worship easy or you find worship difficult. And let me clarify from the very beginning, when I say worship, I don't just mean singing. I mean giving your life as an act of worship. You can worship in many ways, but I will talk a lot about the worship that we do here on a Sunday morning in terms of singing, but I'm talking about worship in how you pray to God, how you receive the word. And I'm going to do it, I'm, going to do a, I'm not going to do a classic three-point preach, hopefully if this is working. I'm going to do a, an equation. Uh, which is really bad mass, and Dan's now looking at that thinking that doesn't work correctly, but um, it's still end up a three-point preach. But I'm going to work through this equation. And here's my opening gambit as I, as I take you into this. My underpinning thought before I do this is that we are worshippers by default. We are worshippers by default. There's something in us that longs to worship. There's something in us that desires to do it. That's our default position. And in the case when Christians are nodding and we're saying, yes, yes, I understand that. But this naughty world idolizes things. This naughty world idolizes other things. We should, be, we should be too quick to judge. Because knowing God does not mean that you are immune from worshipping the wrong things. Far from it. You know, in Romans 12... Here's what it said. God gave people over to it. They knew God. These were not people who didn't know God. They, he gave them over it. It says in this, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds and animals and creeping things. So we think, ah, yes, well, those first century people, even if they knew God, they were, that, that means they were kind of pagan-like. So really, just first century people are like that. Not us today, that's just the first century because of worshipping, you're thinking of carved idols. But actually it's the whole position of the heart that he's talking about. Just consider the one example in our modern culture today, football. Now, it says, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Hmm. So, birds and animals and creeping things. 
I always knew Spurs, you see? So Spurs, yeah? Chelsea. It's getting worse. Liverpool. Man City. Now it's going to get really weird. Peter Wiles, can you please explain this one to me? That's Coventry's. <laughs> I know he can. <laughs> I'm sure, but like, how many animals can you get on one thing? And what's the one? Never mind. I, I, you can tell me in a break. That's all right. How about this one? Aaron used to support this team, but he gave them up for Watford. Watford. Animals everywhere. Now, I'm not going to make too big a point of it, but the point is there's something of us that maybe picked up on something to idolize and to worship the, the creatures, the created things, and not the creator who creates. And it's kind of seeping into our culture. And I'm not saying if you've got a Liverpool shirt, burn it. Well, maybe. But, you know, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying look at how the symbolism has come about. There are three permissible teams. Just so you know, you can follow Arsenal, West Ham... <laughs> Or if you don't like military symbols, go for Bolton. It's just basically the letters of the team. But joking aside, the Bible talks a lot about worship many times. It's about the things that compete with God. And it's not saying don't enjoy things, but it's when they become idols. And they become things that we start to worship. And if you've been to a football match, there's a lot of strange stuff going on. Let's be clear. Worship is in us by default. And it's good when we point it to the right things, the right direction. In Scripture, we're called to do it over and over again. No more than in the Psalms. Keep getting called to worship. Look at these. These are, these are the Psalms about worship. So Psalm 29.2. Uh, Ascribe to the Lord the glory due to his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Psalm 95.6. O Lord, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker. We're going to talk a lot about that this morning. What does it mean to bow down? Psalm 99. Exhort the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. So we're called to do it. And it's in our makeup. We look at things with wonder and we look at things with awe. Worship means having this feeling or expression or reverence, adoration. Reverence, the, the revere, means to feel some deep, that word means to feel some deep respect or admiration, something deeper when we revere, we have reverence for God or something. Let me go a little bit deeper than football logos to just test the theory. Is this, is this in us? Have you ever been on an English hill or on a mountain somewhere on a glorious day? Dunstable Downs, Ivanhoe, Box Hill, they're places in our country, but you know, maybe the, the extremes of the Grand Canyon. I once went to the Canadian Rockies and you can go right to almost the very top and then stare across the Rockies. It was a, a great privilege to have, but even the English countryside there's a moment in there when you're looking at those sprawling fields from a British hill with a Grand Canyon, and they're not just lots of grass and trees, and the, it's not a big hole in the dirt, as Mark Driscoll once described it in a brilliant preach about this topic. It's not a hole in the Grand Canyon. It's not just a hole in the dirt. There's something else. This, this isn't just trees and grass. The Rockies aren't just rocks sticking up out of the ground. It's something that makes us have this, wow moment when we stand and we stare at something like that and we're taken by it 
something in us lifts and we feel that moment of reverence, we feel that moment of awe, we feel very small in something very, very big. And awe falls upon us. Something, when it's immense, just draws us into a place of marveling and wonder. To me, that's the essence of worship. It's not because what you're seeing, the vista itself, it's because it pulls on something that God placed within us to be full of awe and wonder for things that are huge and amazing. Evolution and science cannot explain why do I stand at the top of those things and go, wow, wow. What is it in me that says that? Something pulls within me. It's that moment of worship and wonder. And in that moment, the challenge is, do we wonder at what we're seeing, the created thing, or do we wonder who created this when you stare at that hillside or that mountain? We'll come back to Psalm 8 a bit later, but actually the song that Sue Abraham was singing, essentially the first line, and it comes from this psalm. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set the glory above the heaven. When I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. That's the God we're worshipping. It's the same when children are born. When they're born, you stare at them in wonder and awe and mystery of what on earth happened that we might create this. We stare at things, we get lost for words, and we make this daft noise. Wow. That comes out, wow. Want to Google what the word wow means? It has no meaning. It has no definition, and they can't find an origin for it. Something comes out of us, and somehow the universal word wow, or if you're American, woo, but wow comes out of us. It just comes out because we have to express something. No one knows, but in the hills and mountains, in galleries and maternity wards, people are going, wow. Something in us wants to celebrate and worship and declare the amazing thing. So I'm going to go into my three points. Talk about when you worship here in X1, but remember when you read, you sing, you listen, you can be in silence in worship. My question is this. Even when you come here in this morning and you come to worship when we sing, do we come ready to go, wow, or do we come ready to go, come on then, wake me up before I go-go, or do we come in and go, wow, I'm here to worship. So I'm starting with these things. So these are my three points. Revelation times elevation is my first one. And I'm going, I'm going to roll back into Ephesians. We were doing a big series recently. I'm going all the way back to chapter 1, 16 to 20. Read this out. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering, this is Paul speaking, the Apostle Paul, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what it is, what is the hope to which you have been called, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. Wow. We're coming to worship him. We're coming to sing of Jesus who he sits at his right hand. So now let's look at, look at the book of Revelation. Uh, which I'm going to be, have to be very brief about. It's quite a book to read, 
Basically, it's, it's written by John, and he gets to peek into heaven, and the Spirit shows him what's going on up there, so he gets to, to look behind. It's full of stuff that takes a little bit of working out, to be honest with you. Um, the important thing is we get a glimpse into, into heaven. The otherness of God becomes unveiled, and we get to see what heaven might be like, or is like, and where we're going. You can sometimes read it and think, what's going on? There's strange creatures, and there's thrones, and there's angels, and there's lampstands. The reason we get confused is because we're so constrained by our world. We don't know what God's world is like. So we think, well, there should be seats, shouldn't there? There should be some walls. And we've got all this constraint because that's our world. But God's world will be very different. And it's one of those books I suggest if you want to read it, get hold of a really good sort of study guide alongside it. Phil Moore's one's great on this. Just walk you through it. But the point is Revelation 3. Jesus is heard talking about being seated on the throne with the Father. Other places it says he sat down at the right hand of the Father. In Revelation 4, it describes this throne of God. Now we have to recognize this is the throne of God with God and Jesus sat upon it. Jesus at his right hand. Jesus says in Revelation 3, I sat down with my Father on his throne. This is not a scooch up thing. They are sitting there together on the throne, God the Father, God the Son. And in Revelation 4.4, it talks about 24 smaller thrones on which sat 24 elders. Now, who they are, what they represent is not so important right now, but just know they're people of high stature. Whoever they were, we don't know, but they were people that had thrones in heaven. 24 of them sat around the throne with God and the Son on it. They are crowned, it says, in heaven. And as the heavenly creatures lead them, night and day, they sing this. So this is what we might have heard several times if you've been around church, but they sing this. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is to come. The angels lead them in the singing of that. The creatures lead them in the singing of that. But here's the thing. Whenever those living creatures give glory and honor and that, and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and they worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power. You created all things and by all things they existed and were created. Here's what it means. Revelation multiplies your elevation. No one in heaven, in heaven, no one in heaven, even those God sits on 24 thrones as leaders of millions or whatever they were, the evidence is there's no pride at play in here. These leaders have been given seats in heaven on 24 thrones. They don't kneel, they fall down in front of him. They fall down and they cast their crowns before him. They lay prostrate in front of him. And this is the part of the problem in the church and in our worship, and it can be here too. And we've got a rich worship resource in the church of our size. We're very blessed. I'm not talking about how good that is or how good it isn't or whatever. I'm talking about how big God's throne is in your eyes when you come to worship him. Are we talking Grand Canyons or the hole you dug for your garden pond? One of the great worship songs of the last 20 years, one of my favorites... Is, has an opening line, before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. I'm before the throne of God above, and I have a plea. 
It goes on to this. I think I put the rest of the words up there. Behold him there, the risen lamb, my perfect spotless righteousness, the great unchangeable I am, the king of glory and of grace. One with himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased with his blood. My life is hidden in Christ on high, with Christ my saviour and my God. Worship, worship, worship that God, that son. If we knew, church, what it was like sometimes, we just need to be refreshed sometimes. Sometimes we need a bit of a kick, me too, that we might know him, that we might let the word wow fall off the end of our mouths. One of the challenges we all face is we so easily lose our awe of God. We lose that sharp take of in, of, of intake of breath. We come to worship and he's not enthroned He's just someone that's alongside me, and I'm wondering if he'll get me to worship. We'll talk about competing thrones a little bit later. For now, let's just agree, we're made to worship. It's not an issue of whether we're worshiping, the issue is remembering who we worship. Not coming here and it taking three to four songs before we hit that moment when finally we're worshiping. That's why I hope the rest of the equation will help us, because I'm not gonna leave it there. Escalation plus communication. So, I was at the um, FA Cup final. Arsenal, Chelsea. Oops. Oh well. Arsenal one two one. Just to clarify. Anyway, I was in the cheap seats. Um, I was given uh, the ticket I got for thirty-five quid, which is incredible because uh, uh, my cousin is a season ticket holder and he couldn't go, so I ended up with this thirty-five pound ticket. But I was up in what Paul describes as the third heaven. Like right up the back, right at the back on the side, and the, on my, behind me was the wall. So you don't get much higher up. I'm literally, I've got my back on the wall. And um, around me, just like me, we're all screaming towards the pitch. Sanchez, just pass it for once. Orza, will you just move, my friend? I was, they couldn't hear me, but I was still screaming, Wenger, bring on Giroud! And I was right, by the way. He obviously heard me, brought on Giroud. We scored. We won 2-1. But my shouts, my shouts, whether they were encouragement, like, yes, whether they were pointers towards the Arsenal management, what was I doing? What was I shouting at? What was I shouting for? Why do we shout at the TV? Why do we do it? Like, no, you shouldn't, you bar. What are we doing? We're shouting. We're expressing something towards that. That's even dafter than being at a football match. We want to be heard. You know, we declare. We want to believe that our voices, even in the masses, somehow are received. And yet, in situations like that, like the the football stadium or shouting at the TV, they're not. Not at all. We're so small in that stadium, yet we cry out to be heard, and we stand here on a Sunday morning. And we declare worship words in this little hall, this little place. And we could feel the same. We could dance in worship and we could sing and we could hear and we could declare, but who would listen? Who would listen? Why worship in the masses? Are we just a number in the voices? Does it really get heard? Am I trying to get God's attention? Well, here's the news. It's good news. God is trying to find you. If that's what you want to do, to come here and worship him, he's looking for you. He's looking for you. 
in response to the elevation, empowered by the Spirit, if you're keen to worship but wonder, is it just singing stuff? Is that what we're doing, we're just singing stuff? Or we like in a stadium, just part of some general noise? No. But the hour is coming. This is Jesus talking to a woman at the well. And is now. When the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Because here's the great news. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. He is looking for you. You're not trying to get his attention. He's looking for you. Do you know who I am? Do you understand what I've done? Do you, I'm not, I don't need your worship. I need you to know what I've done. So all these songs we're singing, do you know what you're singing? It's truth up there. I would declare it's truth. But God is seeking you. So if you're true when you declare that, that's part two, spirit and truth. God wants you to be honest in your worship. doesn't want you to pretend. doesn't want you to pretend to be happy when life is tough. But he wants to know you still believe in the God, the Father. The first song we sang today, the creed. And we worked into another song too because he wanted to keep singing it. You can declare, Lord, you are good and your mercy endureth forever despite your situation because you believe it to be true. That's the truth we're declaring. That's the truth. And that's great in theory. The truth is great, but it's not so easy in practice. Words come out. Sometimes they feel just like words, but it says spirit and in truth. When we come to worship, we need to come in an attitude that says, here I am to worship as an offering and a request. Holy Spirit, help me to worship. Help me to lift my head above my situation, to see God in every line of every song we're singing. The Spirit enables worship by making it more than words. Classic old song, more than words, more than words. More than shouting in the crowd. He sets up a line of communication. So let me punch in challenge number two in the fight. How often do you and I pray before we start to worship on a Sunday? Not some big Holy Joe prayer, but this. Spirit of God, fall upon me. Help me to worship. Help me to see you. Help me to declare these truths. And as I sing or I read or I hear truth, my soul gets ministered to. I declare truth about you, the Father, truth about his Son, and you, Spirit, minister that truth to me and my soul becomes well. That it's more than words. God knows when you are singing because the music is making you do it. Oh, it's the rules of your church. Stand and sing, sit down again, stand and sing. You know, that kind of thing. We're just up there doing what we're told to do. He knows that. He knows that type of worship. And that's not what he's looking for. He loves it that you do it. But we sang today, when the music fades, all is stripped away. And I simply come longing just to give something that's of worth that will bless your heart. It's more than a song. There are many churches that are amazing at getting a vibe going. Crowds can respond, but worship is not some concert. It's communication and it's a relationship. God does not need your worship, doesn't need my worship. God needs to know, do you know who I am? Do you know the throne I'm sitting on? That's the secret of worship for me. When you do it in spirit and in truth, it elevates God and fixes our eyes on Jesus and the net Worship starts to come fruit. When you worship in the spirit, peace, joy, and hope, and love, that we would declare these things and they would mean something to us. 
We take it in, we speak it out, we sing it out, and the truth ministers to us, reduces our earthly worries. Worship does involve some sacrifice. Worship is often sacrifice. You know, you, you have to lay some things down, invest in it sometimes. It's not the singing bit or a ritual. We sacrifice the price. We're offering. We bring a thanksgiving offering to him. We bring sacrifice of praise into the house of the Lord. My cousin recently uh, told us that he was, couldn't go to Arsenal anymore because he's got his season ticket and he just couldn't go to the game. So he, I asked him, how much was the season ticket? He said, £1,185. <laughs> okay, Jane. No, I didn't even bother. Um, that kind of, to worship every two weeks at uh, the Emirates was going to cost you that. Worship costs. Solve a lot of church size problems, by the way, if we just start to charge that kind of fee. Um, but I kid, but I don't in a way. We need to swallow our pride in this space as well. Ask for help sometimes in worship. Pride can be the opposite of worship. A barrier to admitting that we need help. It says my father will send a helper when he talks about the Holy Spirit. If you're struggling to worship, ask for help and push in, but invest as well. Do you want to be a worshiper God seeks? I know I certainly do. It costs sometimes. There's some effort I want to put into it. I've asked him to help me and I'm going to come and I'm going to pray and I'm going to focus my eyes on you and I'm going to invest. I'll sacrifice for that kind of worship. So the last bit of the equation. Communication minus elimination. Now I do appreciate that. It's very bad maths. You can't minus and eliminate. But this is the final bit of the main bit of the fight. The battleground and for this, we need to look at, we're going to look at Matthew 4. If anyone doubts there's a battle going on for your worship and who you would give your heart to, then look who got challenged by who. Again, the devil took him, Jesus, to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God Almighty, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, the angels came and were ministering to him. Satan says this to Jesus, in, in essence, Satan says, You can have everything you want, all the kingdoms of the world, everything you want. What's your everything? To Jesus, Satan says, I'll give you all you can see. The thing you want and all you need to do is switch your worship to me. Church, worship is a fight. It's one where your preoccupation with other things draws your attention. And while the devil may not be promising you the thing, he knows your desires and how worship gets closely connected. And he brings them towards you. What Matthew 4 is highlighting is this. When you become the center of your worship and the things that you need or want... And that can sound good stuff on the surface. I want a partner. I want a good job. But when that starts to be the object of worship, that's enemy territory. That's idolatry. What we want, we desire, need, or love taking too much throne space. I want to leave, release a bit of the pressure off at the moment, to be honest with you. But I want to keep the pressure on, if that makes any sense. Loving something can be wonderful. Loving something can be wonderful. I love my family. I love my wife. I love Jess. I love Joel. I love Smudge, our dog. But I don't worship them. 
I could if I'm not careful, but I don't. I don't put them up on high and bow before them, but I can make them too much of an object of my attention and God just disappears off to the side. And I'm sure my wife wants me to say, yes, love me, but don't worship me, worship him because he'll make you a good husband. He'll make you a good father. He'll guide you in the ways of righteousness. He'll put you on the straight path. He'll correct you when you go wrong. He'll be the one that gives you the right direction through the scripture. He has the spirit that can teach you. He's the one that will help you in all situations. Don't worship me, Andy. Worship him. Love me. He'll make you love me better. That's who I follow. That's who I worship. I don't know if you saw the posting this week by the Jungs of Michaela. Did anyone see that? Of her like waking up and going, dancing. You look at these children, you want to love them, but you kneel before them? Michaela, can you tell us what to do? No. She'd say, if she could, follow God, love me. You can love your job, love your family, love your career, love the thought of marriage, success, whatever it is, but never make it an idol, the thing you worship. That's what Satan tried to do to Jesus himself. I'll give you everything you want. You just switch your allegiance away. Look at this. Look at all this stuff I can give you, Lord. Look at all that. St- Jesus, you can have. And Jesus thinking, no, he isn't. I'm not putting anything into Jesus' mind. Hmm. Hang on a second. No, no, no. That's who I worship. Not that. This is the God we follow. I'm going back to Psalm 8. This is the song that we sung that I didn't tell Sue we were doing, so. <laughs> It came through. O oh Lord, O oh Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. When I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set its place. What is man? Who are we that you are mindful of us? The son of man that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. And crowned, this is us guys, don't think him is something, he's talking about us. Crown us with glory and honor. You've given us dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under our feet. He who created everything has put that under our feet. Church, God wants you to know that if you're living in the revelation of who he is, and for that we need to elevate him to the throne and get ourselves off one. He wants to communicate by worshipping in the spirit and in truth, and he's seeking us for that. But in this battle... We must eliminate the worship of other things that have themselves just become objects of worship. Jesus was asked this, and this is where I want to end. The Pharisees were trying to trick him up, and they said this. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. That's the worship we're looking for. Amen.